we have plenty We have gathered into bars Done the same work as the men With babies in our hearts But you won't find our stories In most history books you read We were there, we're still here Fighting for the things we need We were there during periods of strong male chauvinism amongst a lot of male workers, time and time again, when we find successful workers' struggles, it's often been the women workers at the forefront, facing the harshest blows and carrying the heaviest burdens, which ultimately makes their, uh, you know, omission from many labor histories all the more uh, detrimental. March is Women's History Month, but as I was putting today's show together, I realized I didn't know the history of Women's History Month. For one thing, it's relatively new, having first been celebrated in 1987. But its beginnings go back over a century, to the first International Women's Day in 1911, and the earliest version reported was a Women's Day organized by the Socialist Party of America in New York City on February 28, 1909. By International Women's Day, which spread across Europe and is now a global holiday celebrated annually on March 8th, had largely been forgotten in the United States until Laura X organized a march in Berkeley, California on International Women's Day in 1969. The march led to the creation of the Women's History Research Center, a central archive that provided resources and records of the women's liberation movement and which petitioned Congress to declare March as Women's History Month. In February 1980, President Jimmy Carter issued a presidential proclamation declaring the week of March 8, 1980 as National Women's History Week. In 1987, after being petitioned by the National Women's History Project, Congress designated the month of March 1987 as Women's History Month. Between 1988 and 1994, Congress passed additional resolutions requesting and authorizing the president to proclaim March of each year as Women's History Month. And since 1995, each U.S. president has issued annual Women's History Month proclamations. Today's show comes to us from the Work Stoppage podcast, a terrific podcast that, as they say, only talks about what can be done for the working class. We're here, they say, to demolish corporate ladders and chew bubblegum, and we don't even like bubblegum. And on Labor History in 2. The year was 1990. That was the day 9,300 workers walked out at Greyhound bus lines. Hey, one more thing before we get to the show. Bev Grant, who you hear singing, We'll be performing We Were There at the Tacoma Busboys and Poets on Tuesday, March 12th with the D.C. Labor Chorus. It's free, but tickets are required, and you can get them at laborheritage.org. Click on Calendar. I'm Chris Garlock, and this is Labor History Today. Thank you for joining us on the start of yet another one of uh, our ridiculous mega series. Very excited to get into this one. This was uh, took a lot of research because, you know, 
we've covered a range of topics in our deep dives into labor history on our show. You know, we last year, for instance, we talked about the very few uh, great general strikes in U.S. history going back all the way to 1892 in New Orleans, uh, running up through those last couple of citywide general strikes before the passage of the NLRA kind of consigned those to the past for now, at least. (laughs) But, you know, we've also talked about some of the earliest strikes in U.S. history, specifically those that took place in the textile industry. Uh, And we've explored the history of mob involvement and government crackdowns on unions like the Teamsters and the International Longshoremen's Association. But one of the unfortunate themes running through those series, as well as really a lot of our coverage generally, is that like most discussions of U.S. labor history, it's been overwhelmingly dominated by discussions of men, of of male workers specifically, largely leaving out the entire no other uh, half (laughs) of the working class is a very large group of people known as women. (laughs) Right? It Uh, just reminds me of uh, when we watched like the Irishman and and some of the mob movies. I'm just like, this, these movies are not made for (laughs) for these these movies. No, it's, there's just dudes and no one else. And it's, you'd you'd think, you'd think that the human population was like 90% male. It's ridiculous. The human Mm -hmm. population is mostly Danny DeVito's. (laughs) (laughs) If you go by our various uh, movie time episodes, you might get that impression. (laughs) But, you know, while some of the reason behind this is that, you know, throughout U.S. history, there's been a lot of discrimination in hiring, especially in the past where many jobs simply wouldn't hire women until recent decades. But that's not really a good excuse because women have been part of the labor movement in the U.S. since before there was a labor movement in the U.S. So women being heavily involved or even leading the labor movement is not something that's only just happened recently. And so the relative lack of coverage of women in discussions of labor history really does all of us a really big disservice. You know, as we're trying to learn from our labor history in ways that we can use to advance our struggle today, if we leave out all of the incredible accomplishments that women workers have made, we're not, we're fighting with one hand tied behind our back. We're just not learning these really critical parts of our history that we need to inform our struggle today. Yeah, we're letting uh, half the sky fall down. Right. Yeah, be pretty much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so in this series, we're going to try and do a very small part in correcting this. And so drawing primarily from the giant reference work, which is itself a smaller version of an even bigger reference work, uh, Women in the American Labor Movement by labor historian Philip Foner, uh, we're going to work our way through the history of the U.S. labor movement over 200 years to try and fill in some of the major gaps in that history that are left in a lot of the broader, like high level histories that you see of the labor movement, which tend to be extremely male centric. And so, you know, when we look back at our history from the very beginnings of capitalist development in the United States, women workers have not only been involved, but have been leaders. I mean, folks who have been longtime listeners to the show will know the very first industrial strike in U.S. history was led by women workers who inspired their less militant male comrades to then organize after them as well. And for decades, even during periods of strong male chauvinism amongst a lot of male workers, time and time again, when we find successful workers' struggles, it's often been the women workers at the forefront facing the harshest blows and carrying the heaviest burdens. 
which ultimately makes their, uh, you know, omission from many labor histories all the more uh, detrimental. And, of course, a big part of the problem with this is that U.S. history overall is overwhelmingly dominated by bourgeois historiography, which tends to focus on individual elites, great man theory, and using ideology to explain the evolution of historical events. Labor history does tend to be a bit more materialist as a subfield of history, partially just because the people that go into it tend to be more left, closer to Marxism. Uh, and so that's good. But again, while we have innumerable works hailing the incredible legacies of male unionists like Eugene Debs, Bill Haywood, Harry Bridges, Walter Ruther, and dozens of others, Equally important organizers like Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, Mother Jones, Dolores Huerta, and so many others have received far less attention. And so in this series, we're going to try and rectify that, highlighting the critical role that women workers have played and continue to play in the development of the labor movement and summarizing some of their many historic victories. Hell so, yeah. I'm very excited to do this. So it's going to be a big undertaking. It's going to go on for a while. We're going to, we're going to be here for at least a couple of months. <laughs> Uh, so strap in and let's jump right into this. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. So uh, kind of as I alluded to, you know, in the, in the intro, we have had a chance to talk about the very earliest strikes in U.S. history on the show before, because some of our earlier episodes gave us a bit of a head start to jump in, because we previously discussed the very first factory strike in U.S. history, the strike at the Slater Mill in Pawtucket, Rhode Island in 1824 where women weavers who are hired because the mill owners could get away with paying women significantly less than male workers responded to an attempt by the weavers of Pawtucket, which is a town that's just north of uh, Providence, uh, Rhode Island, uh, where they had attempted to fix wages as a cartel. And so in response, the weavers are just like, well, okay, no, <laughs> fuck you, and, and launched a walkout. And it took a week of mass protests because, of course, the bosses were not willing to just listen to the workers and accept that what they tried to do was fucked up. So it, it took a week of mass protests and um, burning one of the mills down. <laughs> but after that, the bosses were a lot more compliant and they were forced to cave and restore the workers' wages to what they had been before they decided to cut them as part of their wage fixing. Now, while that very first strike didn't then launch, you know, like the Textile Workers of America or, or a, uh, a national union like that, it did inspire other workers across the country and really kicked off 200 years of industrial action in the United States. And like, it seems a pretty, uh, you know, important fact that this was led entirely by women workers. And yet again, whenever you see anything about labor history in the United States, it's the guy waving a hammer inside the sparks and steam factory. <laughs> it's as, as Adam Johnson has said on, on citations needed. It's, 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 it, you would never know from most labor histories that again, the leaders of the very earliest strikes in the U S were all women workers. And a big part of that is because of how the industrialization of this country really occurred, starting with the textile industry, because textiles were the first, real fully mechanized industry to develop on a mass scale in the U.S., which largely mirrors, um, think, developments in Britain, whereas you had, like, you know, the, the steam engine was invented for mining, but mechanized industry really took off with textiles. And prior to the growth of industrial capitalism, most textile production 
was done on a home basis by women peasants. So you, you, because the vast majority of everybody before the Industrial Revolution and at least Western society were subsistence farmers. Uh, you have a much smaller amount of folks who lived in towns who may have had some sort of trade, but the vast majority of people lived in farm families. And so you had the, you would have like usually uh, the man in the family would be working on the farm, and then his wife would be would be heavily involved in household production of various commodities. Well, sorry, that's not true. Household production of various items used by the home, which sometimes would be commodities. Sometimes they would be produced for sale for, for money. But a lot of the times it was just producing the stuff that you needed, whether it was candles, whether it was clothing, whether it was simple items that you needed or, or around uh, you know, or things that if you had the extra time, you could then sell to other people. That was a, kind of the bulk of a lot of that production. But once you could use steam-powered machinery or water-powered machinery to create a powered loom or powered spinning mule, you could crank out yarn, you could crank out cloth at a way, way, way faster and therefore cheaper rate. And so the industrial mills that were set up to do that starting in the 1790s in Rhode Island, they would then flood the market with all this cheap cloth. There's like, look at what we can make. It's so cheap. It's wonderful. And to a certain extent, it is. It's great. Now people can afford more cloth goods. They can afford more clothing. But the problem that results there for the women who had been making those goods in the past is, well, if you were making cloth goods at home for sale in the market, and now the industrial mills are flooding the markets with this cheap cloth, your market has now completely evaporated because there's no way you can compete with them. And so that destroyed the market for textile home goods, and that basically forced a huge uh, swath of women who had previously produced these goods at home into the textile mills. And it's not just that the you know, workers went from working for themselves to being directly exploited by their bosses that was so bad about this. It was that the conditions in the mills were nightmarish, as one woman weaver in New York City described in 1830. Quote, Only think of a poor woman confined to her seat 15 hours out of 24 to make a pair of pantaloons, for which she received only 25 cents. And indeed, many of them are not able to make such a pair in much less than two days. Only think of 12 and a half cents for making a shirt that takes a woman a whole day, if she attends to any work in her family. There, a poor soul must sit all day in this dark weather and burn candles half her time and injure her health to lay in coal for the approaching winter. How shall she clothe her poor children or even feed them at this rate? Yet there are many poor women of my acquaintance that are placed in the disheartening situation I have mentioned, and many of them are widows with a number of children. And the tailors scold us when we bring home the work, and some of them say that the work is done ill, and then take out half the price, or give us nothing if they think fit. And at the same time, they sell their clothes much dearer than they did some time ago, and God help us, we have to submit to the injustice, end quote. Yeah, I, and like, the wording there is uh, definitely old-timey. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we're going to be, these first couple episodes, we're dealing with stuff from 150, 200 years ago. So yeah, there's going to be, uh, you'll be able to tell by the the wording <laughs> how old some of it is. But 
One of the other things, though, that I think is really interesting when you look back at these historical situ like labor conditions 200 years ago is like how much labor we kind of take for granted today <laughs> that is mechanized. Because now, you know, we have industrial textile mills that can burn out, you know, I don't know, thousands and thousands and thousands of, of shirts a day. I mean, I don't, I don't know. It's maybe even maybe I'm underselling it there. But at this point, you know, again, this is somebody working maybe at one loom that's got like uh, it, it that's belt driven from steam power or just something that's foot powered if it's in like a sweatshop situation, which were extremely common. Uh, and yet they're paid jack shit. Like you don't even need to know the inflation rate. We'll, we'll get into that when we get into some more details about money. But like even you don't have to. It's like. We're going to pay you 12 and a half cents for making a shirt that took you a whole day. Like, you don't have to know how much cents we're worth back in 1830 to know that that's like fucking nothing for an entire day's work. Like, yeah, I mean, just think they're, they're like, entire days I mean, work. a penny like, is the smallest division of a dollar. And so, like, things never really got cheaper than that. Well, yeah. And, I, and, and to her point in that quote, you know, she's talking about working 15 hours a day. And so, like, you're making less than a penny an hour with this sort of, like, it's, that's how bad <laughs> conditions were 200 years ago. And, and, I, and I, it sets the stage, I think, partially. One thing that I really think that learning labor history really helps burst your bubble for right away is any sort of this very commonly used nostalgia for a time when things were simpler and better for workers. No, right? things... <laughs> That since the beginning of capitalism, it has been fucking terrible and has just continued to be terrible in new and different ways. <laughs> yeah, and we see like just like to move to today, the innovations, quote unquote, innovations in like AI. It is just another example of the quote unquote progress that is then just wielded against workers to deteriorate our conditions. Right, exactly. Well, and the other thing, though, too, that I want to highlight from her quote, and we'll see this time and time again with the way that women workers were disrespected quite a bit more than men is the point where she talks about like where if she would have to take the work home to finish it at the end of the day and then bring it back. And sometimes they'd just be like, no, that's not good enough. We'll take it and we'll sell it, but we're not paying you anything. Like, yeah, bosses absolutely screwed over male workers, but most bosses would be worried if you tried that, that, you know, you might face some violence. And so this mm -hmm. is another thing where you see like violence rooted in this because you have a lot of these bosses who think, and we'll see this time and time again throughout this, who think that women workers will not stand up for themselves. And that, that, that like, that's a way that they can add another way to oppress women workers. And, and, you know, the, the, the crushing parts of our society uh, is such as all of the various forms of ingrained misogyny that exist, sometimes like put a lot of pressure on these women workers not to fight back, which is again all the more reason to me why it's so important to tell these stories and show that even 200 years ago, as misogynist and patriarchal a society as this the USA is now and B absolutely was then, you still had people from the get go being like, no. <laughs> This isn't okay. You can't pay people these wages that nobody can survive on. We have to fight back. And so, like, it exposes the lie behind the any idea that, like, class struggle is a new thing, <laughs> that it's like this is something that only happened recently, or that, like, uh, that workers are only stirred up by outside agitators.
It's like from the minute there's been industrial capitalism in the U.S., there's been pushback, there's been strikes, there's been organizing. As I went to walk in on a fine summer's morning, the birds on the bushes did whistle and sing. The lads and the lassies in couples were sporting. Then back to the factory, their work to begin. I saw one amongst them, she was fairer than any. Her cheeks like the roses that bloom in the spring Her skin like the lily that grows in yon valley She was only a hard-working factory girl Crowd 
gather round couldn't hide the destruction I cast my eyes on it in such disbelief a truth of the world settled into the ashes the rich man's neglect is the poor man's grief As I stood there a whisper it did caress me a faint scent of roses my senses begun I lifted my face and I saw that above me a thousand young dark in the sun I'm Rick Smith And this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1990. That was the day 9,300 workers walked out at Greyhound bus lines. The 1980s devastated Greyhound workers. First, the industry had been rocked by President Carter's deregulation of the transportation industry. Then, a bitter 1983 strike ended in defeat for the workers. Concessionary contracts, deep wage cuts, and a two-tier wage system were firmly established by the time contract negotiations started in early 1990. The Amalgamated Transit Union negotiated terms closer to what was lost over the past decade. But the new owners at Greyhound would have none of it. They claimed $300 million in debt. The ATU insisted the company had been turning a handsome profit. Pickets went up at depots and garages around the country, while hundreds of scab drivers were hired. With a week's worth of training, they were soon operating 10-ton buses unsafely. Riders complained of replacement drivers falling asleep at the wheel. The strike soon turned violent and deadly. There were reports of sniper fire and bomb threats. Many charged that these were fake stories meant to spike public support for the strike. Early on, 59-year-old Robert Waterhouse was run down by a scab driver while on the picket line in Redding, California. Waterhouse had 30 years as a driver with the company and had planned his retirement for that summer when he was killed. ATU reported many more picket line injuries. Within a month, the company was operating with 2,400 replacement drivers. The company filed for bankruptcy in June. After three years, they would finally agree to $22 million in back pay, reinstate hundreds of drivers, and raise wages. But the number of drivers was cut in half. It would take the ATU years to rebuild its strength.
Hey, that's it for this week's edition of Labor History Today. You can subscribe to LHT on your favorite podcast app. Even better if you like what you hear, and we sure hope you do. Like it in your podcast app, pass it along, and leave a review. That really helps folks to find the show. Labor History in Two is a partnership between the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show. That's a labor-themed radio show based out of Pennsylvania. Special thanks this week to the Work Stoppage podcast. Today's show came to us from that podcast, which has now put out five episodes of their Women in the U.S. Labor Movement series. You can find them laborradionetwork.org or wherever you listen to podcasts. Our music was We Were There by Bev Grant and the New York City Labor Chorus. Bev will be performing We Were There at the Tacoma Busboys and Poets on March 12th with the D.C. Labor Chorus. It's free, but tickets are required. You can get them laborheritage.org. Click on Calendar. Labor History Today is produced by the Labor Heritage Foundation and the Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. You can keep up with all the latest labor arts news by subscribing to the Labor Heritage Foundation's free weekly newsletter at laborheritage.org. The Labor History Today team includes Ben Blake, Patrick Dixon, Leon Fink, Sherry Lincoln, Joe McCartan, Evan Papp, Jessica Pozak, and Alan Weirdak. For Labor History Today, this has been Chris Garlock. Thanks so much for listening. Keep making history, and see you next time. Yeah.